Oral questions by members? Member for study White Rock. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Despite two straight elections with big promises about affordability, life has never been more unaffordable under this NDP government. The cost of everything is up, from housing prices to grocery bills and, of course, to gas. Affordability at the pumps is non existent. Gas prices have now hit $2.10 a litre. It's costing more for families to get to work, more to take their kids to soccer practice. Everything is just costing more. Families are struggling to get by every single day, and other provinces are stepping up. We are seeing other premiers take real action to help families, not just making empty promises. Families expect this premier to step up and keep his word. So my question is to the premier. Will he finally deliver on his failed promise to give British Columbians the help they need today? Premier. Thank you, Honourable Speaker, and I thank the member for his interest in affordability issues. We've been, of course, on that file for the past five years, reducing costs in any number of ways. I can inventory them for the member, but I suspect I'll be up for the next half hour. I'll have plenty of opportunity to do that. Instead, I'll, I'll say, uh, I think, I believe the obvious, that uh, international commodity prices are, are in upheaval, and uh, that's the case in British Columbia. The impacts are felt here. They're felt in Montreal. They're felt in Florida. They're felt in, in Central Europe. Just last week, uh, the, the members on that side were critically concerned about affordability in, in Germany, and, and as am I, and as are all citizens of the world. But we have to start with the fundamental premise that the instability we're seeing today is not a result of government policy. It's a result of one government's policy, and that's the government of Russia. Member for City White Rock, supplemental. Uh, thank you, uh, Mr. Speaker. And, and to the Premier, this isn't new. British Columbia had the highest gas taxes and gas prices in North America before the war, and they're the highest today. And the Premier continues to make things worse, not better. He promised to take action, and the only thing British Columbians got was an utterly useless website. And he has increased gas taxes every year, turning the carbon tax by removing revenue neutrality and taking over $1 billion in extra taxes that should have been returned to British Columbians. Almost 40 cents a litre is controlled by this Premier. 40 cents a litre. Other Premiers are acting, and this Premier chooses to do nothing. Will the Premier finally follow through on his promise and help British Columbians with the soaring gas prices? Premier. Speaker. Well, I'm sure the member will know, if he doesn't, those who are more experienced in this House will know that the carbon tax was brought in by the former Liberal government, as were low-carbon low fuel standards. And I, and I hear revenue neutral. Revenue neutral to them was a $2 billion corporate tax cut. That's what they did. That's what they did. Forgive me if I don't embrace their so-called revenue neutrality. But the root of the issue, Honourable Speaker, is that we're members, in an extraordinary time. We're members, in an extraordinary time, and the member from Nechako surely knows member that. Member from uh, Lakes. But perhaps he has an answer to the question, Honourable Speaker. Member from Nechako Lakes, please listen to the answer when the question has already been asked. Member for Kamloops, North Thompson. Well, thank you, Mr. Speaker. The, the Premier seemed to take decisive and quick action in this budget when he made sure that he was covered with a $40,000 pay hike and his cabinet was covered with a $20,000 pay hike. But there's real-world implications when the Premier refuses to take action on the high price of gas. 
It's hurting nonprofits like the Backpack Buddies, which deliver food to kids in need. In fact, that agency is facing around a $20,000 a year increase to their fuel bill to be able to deliver food to kids in need. I guess the $20,000 is okay for Cabinet. No worries when it comes to Backpack Buddies. The co-founder of the charity, Emily Ann King, says, and I quote, my biggest concern is how it's impacting families, end quote. Again, the Premier has repeatedly promised to take action around gas prices. He has done nothing, yet he controls 40 cents and climbing a litre of taxes. When is the Premier going to do something to help struggling families with the price at the pumps? Honourable Premier. Thank you, Honourable Speaker. And uh, I, I'm quoting uh, Kevin Falcon when he said, I don't want to pretend there's any magic solution to fuel price increases uh, that have doubled in the past 12 months, which is what he said in 2008. So uh, the, the, magic, the magic in the pixie Members. dust uh, seems to be existing in a party that Kevin Falcon left but has now come back to. Perhaps you can send him a memo and see what his solutions are to this problem, because he didn't have any when we were asking the very same question. Now, Honourable Speaker. Mem members, order. Honourable Speaker. Honourable Speaker. Members. Members, come to order. Premier Honourable Speaker, continue. British Columbians have been concerned about gouging at the pumps for a long, long time. This is a new phenomenon. And what we did to address that was we brought in, we brought in fuel transparency legislation so that the Independent Utilities Commission could ensure that every increase in gasoline was directly a result of market forces and market conditions. Now, there was a time in ancient, ancient history when the people on that side of the House called themselves free market politicians. But that free market disappears when you travel from here to over there. Because instead, instead of being upfront and upfront and honest with British Columbians and telling them that an Ill illegal invasion in Ukraine is the resulting the result of the increases we're seeing today. Instead, they want to turn it around and say the carbon tax which they champion is now the problem. I don't get it. Pick a side, remember? Pick a side. Member for Cambridge North Thompson, supplemental. Well, thank you, uh, Mr. Speaker. And as we've pointed out many times, highest gas taxes, highest gas prices before the war, and we continue to have those in North America, and this Premier has done absolutely nothing. And he may want to quote 13 years ago. Let's look at his own words four years ago, 207 weeks ago, when he says, we have talked about a range of options, and we will look at them should prices remain high over the next number of weeks. I guess 207 is not a high enough number of weeks that prices have remained high to the Premier. But wait, there's more, Mr. Speaker. If the price increases persist through the summer, we'll look at other options. That was April 4, 2019. So a year after the Premier first started promising a relief at the pumps for people. Then in February this year, everything's on the table. I'm certainly prepared to look at an, any opportunity we have. That was in February. We've seen other provinces act on gas prices. We've seen them try to bring relief at the pumps. This Premier instead has grandstanded for years about protecting consumers. But he hasn't done a thing. All he has done is build a useless website that was built around the inability for the BCUC expressly was forbidden to look at government policy and government taxation as it related to the price at the pump. So again, if the Premier had a solution 207 weeks ago, it's high time 
He provided us what that solution is and actually take some action for a change for people. Premier. Thank you, Honourable Speaker, and I, again, the enthusiasm for the member is undeniable, but what have we done for the driving public in British Columbia? We, we, we fixed the, the dumpster fire that was ICBC. It led to 500 bucks, 500 bucks in the pocket of ratepayers just by making those changes that gets better care for people and protects us from the usury that used to be on that side of the house. Every dollar that came into ICBC on their watch went to pad their budget and give tax breaks to corporations. Members. Fess up, members. Fess up. Your focus when you had the opportunity was not on the travelling public. Far from it. Your focus at that time was to gouge the travelling public by increasing their ability to travel in the lower mainland, the only place where there were tolls, and they're not anymore. We got rid of those as well, Honourable Speaker. So, just in case, in case the member's not aware of this, gas prices have gone up and gone down and gone up and gone down over the past number of years, and now the travelling public has protection. They can go members. to the Utilities Commission, not to the opposition, Honourable Speaker, the Utilities Commission, where independent analysis will take place, and they can get real answers to the problems of today. Members, it will be very useful if we hear the question and then listen to the answer, please. Member for Saanich North and Islands. Meanwhile, we have this debate in this House. The fossil fuel industries registered $46 billion in profits last year. Anyway, the government has made it clear that since 2020, their solution to the housing crisis has been to build more supply. It's true, they have built more supply than over uh, two decades ago, but the experts are also clear that uh, not all housing supply is made equal. City of Vancouver policy started during the vision days uh, incentivizes developers of, quote, for-profit affordable housing, end quote. Under this program, an affordable studio apartment, it costs $1,800 a month. An affordable one-bedroom goes for $2,200 a month. And if you're a family in the need of a three-bedroom apartment, that's $4,000 a month. This is all supposedly affordable housing. At these prices, the market-driven, quote, for-profit affordable housing model is failing British Columbians, Mr. Speaker. This BCNDP government has invested $2 billion of public money into the housing hub, but this public investment is not restricted to non-market housing options. Through you, Honourable Speaker, to the Attorney General and Minister of Housing, how much of the housing hub money is dedicated to non-market housing solutions? Attorney General. Uh, thank you, Mr. Speaker. So first of all, I, uh, I know the Georgia Strait article the members quoted with his rent numbers. The article is incorrect. It cites uh, market rents at $4,000 for a three-bedroom uh, and affordability uh, quite different. I'm happy to share the report uh, with him, but uh, when reading media and it refers to reports, sometimes it's helpful to get the report and review the report itself. Uh, secondly, uh, on the housing hub, there's two... Well, it's a good idea to read the report if you're interested in housing. So the, the second piece is that for the $2 billion uh, that we put into the housing hub, it's expressly designed to support increased affordability and increased construction of market rental housing. That's what the program's designed for. It's meant to bring down the cost of rental units in market buildings that are being constructed and to incent developers to build desperately needed rental housing. People are lining up for rental housing. We know that Amazon's adding 5,000 employees in Vancouver. We know that Microsoft is adding 5,000 employees in Vancouver. 
where are these people going to live if we aren't building market rental housing? And so this is desperately important. Middle-income housing, including rental housing, is critically important. It shouldn't be made light of. It's as important, and it takes pressure off the low end. It's a key part of our government's policy. I'm very grateful the member asked the question. Member for Sandwich Northern Island, supplemental. Yeah, thank you, Mr. Speaker. Public money should be invested in non-market housing solutions instead of uh, subsidizing the construction costs for developers. Because as it stands, there's no incentive to create a truly affordable housing. And the member can uh, stand and, and, and diminish the, the numbers. The reality is, is that British Columbians are contacting us all the time, telling us that affordable housing units are well out of reach for them. They're not affordable for British Columbians. The government isn't prioritizing housing that will meet the basic shelter needs for British Columbians. For example, a Cooperative Housing Federation of Canada pointed out that across Canada in 1982, more than 6,500 co-op housing units were built. In 2020, only 500 were built nationally. In BC, that number obviously is much smaller. Just last month, NDP MP Dan Davies stood in the House of Commons to celebrate a, or Don Davies. <laughs> You didn't join the NDP? <laughs> Don Davies. Uh, he invited uh, MP Davies, invited prominent members of his Vancouver Kingsway uh, community, quote, who shared their experience, knowledge, and vision as to how we can expand this incredibly successful housing model into the 21st century, end quote. Through Honourable Speaker to the Attorney General and Minister of Housing, his federal NDP counterparts seem to get it. Why is the BC NDP not investing housing hub money, uh, uh, public money, $2 billion, on building more non-market housing options such as co-ops? Attorney General. Well, uh, thank you, Honourable Speaker. I mean, the member knows that the housing hub program is only one of many different housing programs we're running. We have a massive, in fact, an historic investment in non-market social housing. Uh, recently in this budget, the finance minister stood and introduced an incredible uh, social housing program for people struggling with serious mental health and addiction uh, uh, challenges uh, that uh, the Minister for Mentor Mental Health and Addiction is bringing into being in partnership with health authorities. Uh, 20 sites across the province desperately needed literally billions of dollars into non-market housing solutions, uh, buying hotels to get people inside off of parks, redeveloping those sites into mixed income housing developments like the Capital City Motel in Victoria. We are doing the important work that was neglected for 16 years by the other side, and we're going to keep doing it. Member for Delta South. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. The restaurant sector has taken many hits over this uh, course of this pandemic. They've closed, then they've opened for takeout. They've tried not to lay off staff and have rules that constantly changed. Something without, sometimes without any warning. And now, just as we head into the patio season, government is shutting down patio permits. It makes no sense. In Vancouver, it's going to cost up to $5,000 to go through a 34-page guide, which requires increased fees, hiring a structural engineer, and architectural drawings, all for a patio as small as six square meters. Will the Premier stop this madness and instead allow the temporary permits that were allowed under the pandemic to continue? Government House Leader. Thank you, Honourable uh, Speaker. 
the period to extend was extended and has been extended and many municipalities have in fact already taken up uh, the offer uh, of making patio permanent, uh, patios permanent. I can tell you that in my own community of Port Coquitlam, they have made them permanent. But the decision on doing that is made by the local government. It's the city of Vancouver that is making that decision. The province has extended the time, local governments are doing just that. But it is the city of Vancouver that is making the decision on whether or not to, and where to, and how to make patios permanent. <laughs> Member for Delta South, supplemental. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Well, not according to the letter written to the government by the mayor of Delta, this is not just a problem in Vancouver, it's actually a provincial regulations. Starting June 1st, starting June 1st, the province has decided that existing patio service areas having allowed for two years will end. The restaurants will have to pay a non-refundable $400 fee, submit floor plans, and refer to the local government. As it says on the provincial government's website, and I quote, Mr. Speaker, approval can take up to 10 months and not all TESA authorizations will be viable permanent patios. Before you apply, you must comply with all local permits, guidelines, bylaws, and requirements, end quote. We are talking about thousands of patios that already went through approvals. They were built and they exist today. Mr. Speaker, will the Premier tell us why the province is planning to kill these patios as of June 1st? Solicitor General and Minister of Public Safety. Thank you, Honourable Speaker. From the very moment that the uh, ability to put the, the patios in place, it was, it was made clear that this was a temporary measure to deal with COVID. That, ex that timeline has been extended now for the second time to June 1st. Local governments are aware of that. Local governments have the ability to decide how long it will take, where they will, where they will allow patios, and what form they will take. Because I'm sure the member knows that in some communities, they actually put the, the, the patios into a traffic lane, and they now have to be moved. So there's no way you can make them permanent, Honourable Speaker. Many communities, already aware of that, have done that work and are allowing uh, patios to, 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 be, to be permanent. Others are taking a much more time-consuming, um, potentially bureaucratic approach. That's what that, uh, that's what that uh, letter refers to. But local government makes those decisions because it's local communities that decide when, how, and where those, if, and when they will become permanent. Opposition House Leader. Well, thank you, Mr. Speaker. Well, it's, it's convenient for the Deputy Premier to, uh, to uh, fail to include in his response the, the role that the Liquor and Cannabis Regulation Branch plays in this. Uh, very, very clearly, and this is what uh, Mayor Harvey mentioned in, in his letter, uh, the Delta Mayor to, to government, uh, very clearly, uh, to ex extend the use of this uh, TESA space, uh, applicants have to apply to the LCRB for permanent outdoor patio space. They have to pay a $400 fee. They have to submit, resubmit floor plans, and they have to uh, have this referred to local government. And it says on the website that this, this could take up to 10 months. Mr. Speaker, this isn't that hard uh, to understand. Uh, the so-called uh, uh, TESA authorizations were submitted online at no cost and usually approved within five business days. Over 2,000 restaurants and other similar uh, organizations were approved for this patio space, only to now see that space end on June 1st. 
Bridget Anderson with the Board of Trade says, and I quote, at the beginning of the pandemic, where there was a willingness by business, by government, by individuals, to really think about how to do things differently and to make it easier for businesses to operate, what happened to that mindset? End quote. There is an easy fix. Just make these patio spaces permanent and do that now. No red tape, no jumping through hoops, no added fees. Just allow these businesses to keep their patios uh, open permanently. Will the Premier do that today? Minister of Public Safety. Thank you, uh, Honourable Speaker. I'm not quite sure what part of my answer the Honourable Member didn't understand, but when you have a patio on a temporary basis that's put into an oncoming traffic lane, the idea of making it permanent sounds somewhat ridiculous to me. Opposition House Leader, supplemental. Well, Mr. Speaker, what, what we don't uh, uh, understand uh, and what British Columbians don't understand is the, the disconnect between what the minister is saying here today and what is on the, 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 the government's website when it comes to this. The, only the NDP would take a program that's working for struggling restaurants and replace it with a long, drawn-out exercise in red tape and fees to enable small businesses to do something that they're already doing. In the last election, both parties promised to make permanent the expansion of service areas such as patios. The NDP made this promise on page 46 of their election platform. Even the Deputy Premier said, and I quote, temporary patios have been a lifeline for so many businesses and workers, and we will make these expanded serving areas part of their long-term recovery and beyond, end quote. But, Mr. Speaker, that's not what's happening as of uh, June 1st when they, these, these uh, permits uh, expire. Struggling businesses will then need to pay a fee, they'll have to submit floor plans, they'll have to go through local government uh, referral processes. And sadly, sadly, Mr. Speaker, these patios are built, these patios are paid for, the patios are loved by the public, and these patios have served as a lifeline for struggling restaurants and other businesses. So will the Premier keep his promise and make this common-sense patio policy permanent to give struggling businesses a fighting chance. Minister. Thank you, uh, Honourable Speaker. Well, that's in fact what has taken place by the extension to June 1st. That is the second extension to local government. They have been made well aware of that. And many communities have already done that my own community in Port Coquitlam, for example. But what's also intriguing, honourable, honourable members, once again, the Liberals don't quite tell the whole story. The comments, of Bridget, the comments by Bridget, Bridget Anderson were made in relation to the City of Vancouver, Honourable Speaker, not on a province-wide basis. It's unfortunate they couldn't do that. Uh, honourable Speaker, the decision on whether and how the patios should be permanent, which many communities are already doing, is made by the local government. And some have moved very quickly, and others, uh, in the case of uh, the comments by Bridget Anderson, refer to a particular municipality, I gather, in the case of Vancouver. That being said, Honourable Speaker, we put it and we moved very quickly to put this into place. We extended the timeline because we were pleased with the response from local government. They have the tools and the ability to do that, and many communities are doing just that, and I expect many more of these patios to be made permanent, but of course they must fit in with the needs and the requirements of the local community. Member for Caribou Chilcotin. 
Well, thank you, Mr. Speaker. The NDP have completely bungled the new groundwater licensing system. They've created stress and uncertainty for thousands of British Columbians and apparently find it funny. As of March 1, anyone not signed up, no matter that they may have worked their land for a hundred years, according to the NDP, they are now illegally accessing water. People are confused and they're worried, and the government shrugs its shoulders as if there's nothing that they can do. Can the minister confirm if those not yet registered will have their water cut off? Will they face fines for watering their livestock? Minister of Forests. Thank you, Mr. Speaker, and I thank the member for the question, and I, I want to remind the members opposite that they actually started this process in 2016. Yes, and, you know, the reality is this has been... Members. This has been challenging work, and because the process that was originally started was extremely complicated. So what we did is we brought in additional staff, we streamlined the process, and we have had thousands more people that have signed up. In fact, you know, last week, you know, it's interesting, people, because we extended the deadline in 2019, we got feedback from people who had signed up. We got feedback from people like in the industry who had signed up. We got feedback from the winery industry, for example, in Kelowna said, we have signed up. Everybody should have signed up, and they knew to sign up. People have been getting letters, have been getting correspondence since 2016. We have uh, sent out additional uh, information to people, 180,000 flyers were sent out to rural BC just to say, if you need to sign up, phone. We've had people on the phone lines ready to help people sign up. 50,000 letters have been sent out since this process started. 67,000 brochures have been distributed. We have had ads. We have worked with the BC Cattlemen's Association, BC Fruit Growers Association, the BC Groundwaters Association, who have all put, in, and many others, we've put hundreds and hundreds of ads into, into news, newsletters, magazines, to say to people, you need to sign up. And what we need to remind people is we need to ensure that we are taking care of water in this province. I don't need to remind anybody in this province. Last year, last summer, we had drought. Vancouver Island was in drought conditions. We need to ensure that we know who's using the water. We need to ensure that it's done properly. Member for Carrie-Buchel-Corton, supplemental. Well, thank you again, Mr. Speaker. If Nothing. That answer absolutely highlights why people are confused and afraid of the rules going forward. You did not answer the question, Minister. I'll try again. Why is it, why is it that the Cabinet Ministers won't take ex and accept responsibility for this registry? They're certainly happy to accept a $20,000 raise. The Minister does not want to talk about what might happen. So let's talk about what is happening. Linda Don of Barrier got a bill for $1,300 in fees, backdated for the entire five years that the NDP has been in power to run a small dog grooming shop. Linda says, and I quote, it's a nightmare, that amount of money to back pay. I nearly fell over and haven't slept at nights, end quote. The government continues to hammer people with new taxes in this province. Fees, whether it's gasoline, used cars, online marketplace, or groundwater. The NDP have bungled this file badly. Will the minister now push pause, please, instead of making this situation even worse? Minister of Forests and Lands. 
Uh, thank you, Mr. Speaker. And I, I just want to quote the former minister, uh, Mary Pollock, who brought this, uh, this the legislation in. Um, yes. Water is vital for life, and the new Water Sustainability Act is essential in protecting our environment for future generations. So that was the member's opposite, Minister of Environment, who said that. This is crucial Members. work, and we are getting it done. And as we said, the best thing that people can do is to get their applications in. We put the support out to help people get their applications in. And we, you know, we, as part of the act, the act that the member's opposite brought in, part of that act said that there would be fees that had to be paid since 2016. So it is, it is not something that, that we dreamed up. It is legislation that was brought in by members opposite. not going to be unreasonable. We are urging people to reach out, reach out to the, there's a 1-800 number, there's people still there working. We're saying that, you know, if you did not get your application in, there is a fee, and that was made very clear since 2016. And we are saying to you, reach out, reach out to the, to the Water Sustainability Act folks who are waiting to help people, and we will work with people. We will not be unreasonable. Member for Abbotsford West. Member uh, for Abbotsford West. Thanks, uh, Mr. Speaker, and to the uh, the minister. I, look, I think the concern uh, on the part of many people is that perhaps their definition of what is reasonable may may differ from what the uh, the minister and the government's definition of reasonable is. The minister knows, given where she lives in uh, in British Columbia, that these are are people, families, uh, who whose ability to live where they do in British Columbia is tied to their access to water. Their ability to operate uh, a small business is tied to their having access to water. And they have had that access in some cases for generations. Their concern is this. In many cases, they are still unclear as to whether or not uh, they're even required to register. And if they don't, the minister has acknowledged there are serious, serious ramifications, both in terms of fines and continued access to that water. And they, what they are looking for and what we are asking from the minister today is some assurance that people, that families living in rural British Columbia will not have their access to life-sustaining water suddenly cut off because of the implementation of the policy that the minister is fine. That's what they're looking for. That's what we're asking. Some assurance that they will not be penalized for failing to register for a process that has not been without problems and for many has been very confusing. Minister. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. And as I said, we are following the process that was brought in under the legislation by when that member sat at the cabinet table. Um, we, are, we have streamlined the process, made it easier. Um, what, we have, what was also part of the legislation is there is a, a fee if you uh, didn't apply before the first, so there is a fee, there's no fines, there's a fee. Um, so we have had, you know, it's interesting, um, Mr. Speaker, when uh, we said that, you know, the deadline was March 1st, you know, we had over 40% of the applications 
in entirety were received in, in the month of February. People recognize that, oh my goodness, this is real. This is going to be implemented. And it has to be implemented because we need to know who's utilizing water. We need to know how much they're using. We need to ensure that everybody in the province has fair access to water. Water's critical. It's our life resource. It keeps us going. It feeds our animals. You're right. The member's right. But we want to ensure that people have have submitted their applications and we're saying to them, get phone and get the help. People will walk you through to ensure that you get your application in. There is a fee now that uh, if you haven't applied by March 1st, there is a fee that was part of the legislation that has been in place since 2016. Um, and I, I, again, I'll say we have put out, you know, we put out an MLA package to every MLA's office. And actually, I know I want to thank the members from Couch and Valley and, and Saanich North and the Islands who worked with my office to ensure their constituents got the application form. And we got hundreds of applications from those areas. You know, it is a, a, you know, I just, I really hope members opposite also did that because we know every single MLA's office in the province and I, that is wonderful to hear because it's really important as MLA's that we are helping our constituents to get the things done they need to get done. This is critically important to the province and I'm glad that people are actually stepping up.